In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, and I'm joined today by, oh wait, Peter Sankoff is away this week. Peter's away this week because he's on vacation, and uh, next episode, he's actually going to be away as well, so I am flying solo today. It is just you and me. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the news all by myself and everything that's been going on lately, but I am going to be joined by a special guest for our main segment. Jake Kamens is joining me. He's an animal cruelty prosecutor who specializes in this area from Oregon, and we're going to talk about his work and what he's managed to accomplish. But for now, you guys, it's just me. So I'm really excited about one thing in particular to tell you about today. Our brand new Patreon page has just launched. Patreon.com slash order is the URL. You can go check it out. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform that lets people put their money where uh, their interests lie. So if you really enjoy uh, something that somebody's doing, you can give them a few bucks through Patreon. A lot of podcasts do have Patreon accounts, and now we're joining those ranks. We love putting this show together, and we've been doing it now for over a year. We put out an episode roughly every two weeks, and it takes a lot of time and effort and uh, money as well to, to put on the show. We are generously supported by Animal Justice, and we love doing the podcast, and we're really happy to bring it to you, but we want to make it even better. Your support via Patreon would help us cover the costs of editing the show and also paying a research assistant so that we can better cover the topics that we want to discuss and help you learn about and understand. We find sometimes that as much uh, as we love doing this, it can be a lot to compile episodes, and if we had a little bit of research help, probably you'd get better content and learn more. So we do hope to be able to afford to hire a research assistant for the show through the Patreon program. So go check it out, patreon.com slash pawandorder. Our program has membership tiers starting at just a dollar a month and all kinds of perks as well for different levels of support. This ranges from handwritten thank you notes, name mentions on the podcast, shout outs on social media, the chance to dedicate an episode to a human or an animal, or appear on the show even, or get animal justice merchandise. But for all levels, you will of course get our utmost gratitude and appreciation. So I do hope you'll go to patreon.com slash pawandorder and become one of our vital supporters and help us spread the word about animal law. Maybe by the time we record the next episode, I'll be able to give some shout outs to our early supporters. Okay, well, on to other news. I wanted to tell you about a great new film out called The End of Meat that I actually make a bit of a cameo appearance in, talking about the role of law in making social change. But the film itself is really important and really timely. 
It tracks the rise of veganism, especially in Germany, where the filmmaker Mark Pierschel is from. And the question that the film tries to answer is, what would our world look like in a post-meat society? How would this look for us, for, for humans? How would it look for animals? How would it look for the environment? They have tons of interviews with many of the leading figures in the animal protection and vegan movements, including scientists who are working on plant-based or cellular meats, slaughter-free meats where no animal has to die. They've got people who run sanctuaries, people engaged in animal activism and social change. It's a really great documentary. It's open to all kinds of uh, star-studded premieres in places like Los Angeles and, and Berlin. I encourage you to check it out. If you visit theendofmeat.com, you can find out how to watch it in Canada, but I believe it's available on iTunes and also Vimeo. There's also an option to organize a screening of the film, so if you're looking for an event topic, this might be a good one. I think there's a nominal fee or a small fee, but it can be covered, and there's a grant application to, to help you fund that if you're interested. So go visit www.endofmeat.com, theendofmeat.com, and check it out. All right, so as usual, it's been busy. I've been going through all the submissions for our inaugural Canadian Animal Law Conference hosted at Dalhousie University this fall, and I gotta say, it looks like we're going to have a stellar program. We've got submissions from uh, Canadian scholars, animal advocates, lawyers, activists, and people abroad too are, are submitting and just putting together really fascinating proposals for different talks. So I think this conference is going to be a great learning opportunity. I really look forward to opening registration in a few months, and of course, we'll let you know when that happens. The other thing that's been keeping me busy, and we've talked about this issue a lot on the show, is Bill S-203, the legislation that would ban whale and dolphin captivity across Canada. We are down to the wire on this bill, but we're running out of time to get it passed before the next election. Right now, it's uh, going before the Fisheries Committee of the House of Commons, and Marineland and the Vancouver Aquarium, the only two places that still can find cetaceans, are pulling out all the stops to try to kill this bill. And Marineland has come up with a new argument. They're saying the bill has to be amended because they have belugas who are pregnant right now, and if those belugas give birth, and produce new whales, Marineland will be in trouble when the bill passes because the bill says you can't acquire any more whales. And I don't think this is a very good argument. I wrote a memo to the Fisheries Committee explaining why we think Marineland's wrong and is just trying to do this to get changes and kill the bill. And we're really hopeful that the Fisheries Committee is just going to pass this bill without amendments. If it is amended, it's a problem because the bill would then have to be sent back to the Senate for approval. And there's pro-captivity senators there that could delay and kill this legislation, which is the last thing that we would want. We just need to get this through before the House of Commons and Parliament rise before the election in June. So if you want to play a role, please, please, please contact your member of Parliament and tell them how important it is to you that this bill gets passed. And as usual, we've got to give a shout out to our amazing podcast sponsor, The Grinning Goat. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan boutique. They have a store in Calgary on 17th Street Southwest, and they also have an online boutique where you can buy stuff and they ship nationwide. The Grinning Goat sells vegan products. They're completely cruelty-free. They have an amazing array of footwear, household items, other clothing, 
And I have to say they're starting to get in some pretty great new spring and summer shoes. So if you're looking to update your wardrobe and your footwear for the new season that's I hope soon coming and hopefully the foot of snow that we still have in Ottawa will soon melt, then I encourage you to check them out. If you use the discount code PAW15 with your order, you will save 15%. And did I mention that they ship nationwide? Okay, on to the news section. So there's been a lot going on at the provincial level around the OSPCA's plans to withdraw from offering law enforcement services in Ontario. We talked about this on the episode the other week, but the OSPCA has said that it will pull out of doing law enforcement when its contract with the province expires on March 31st, which is almost now. And uh, there's been a lot of questions about what is going to come next. Will Ontario step up and put some sort of new system in place? So there have been a couple developments on this front. Uh, first of all, Green Party leader in Ontario, Mike Schreiner, asked the government about these, this issue in question period earlier uh, this week. So that was great to get it on the government's agenda. And he asked what their plan was. The government responded that it was working on a plan, but it didn't really describe what that plan was. So I'm glad to see the issues being discussed in the political sphere, but we still need more details. Uh, We did learn that the OSPCA will continue enforcing the laws after the March 31st um, withdrawal. They'll keep on for another three months until the end of June. But at that point, the government's going to have to come up with a new plan to make sure that animals are protected in this province. So we'll be following that and bring you information as it comes. And I'm really keen to talk about some pretty neat news out of New York State and New York City. So there was a a bill introduced by a state representative named Linda Rosenthal that would ban fur sales and production right across the state of New York. So that's pretty cool. Uh, We've seen now similar bans introduced in California. It's being debated and and passing through committees there. And the cities of West Hollywood, Berkeley, San Francisco, and Los Angeles have already banned fur sales. And after this statewide bill was was announced by uh, Representative Rosenthal, three New York City councilors actually introduced a bill as well. So there's a bunch of different efforts going on at this point. Uh, One of the councillors, Corey Johnson, who introduced or co-sponsored the bill, uh, here's a quote from him that was in one of the news articles. He says, As an animal lover, I believe it is cruel to kill an animal just for the purpose of people buying or wearing a fur coat. There is really no need for this. In a progressive modern city like New York, banning the sale of fur clothing and accessories is long overdue. Saying no to fur is fashionable and a symbol of progress. This proposal is about protecting animals and their unnecessary killing. And I just have to say, like, wow, those are some amazingly strong words from a legislator. I only wish some Canadian legislators had that kind of guts and that kind of passion for animals, but I I think that's coming. Apparently, New York City actually has about 130 fur businesses who are already gearing up for a fight on this issue. They've hired lobby firms. They've hired PR firms. And I just want to point to one comment. We'll post the link to this in the show notes. But a comment made in one of the news articles covering the New York City legislation. A fur store owner says, quote, What happened to freedom of choice? Next, it will be the meat industry and chicken industry. When will it end? So he's kind of complaining about activists and what are they going to do next? And I kind of just had to laugh at this because, I mean, where has he been hiding? Hasn't he realized that one of the major targets of animal advocates is the meat industry, and in particular the chicken industry, which kills the most animals? 
So, you know, I don't know if it's a surprise to these guys that we're focusing on all areas of animal use and abuse, but we certainly are. And back here in Ontario, I want to talk a little bit about some articles that have been appearing recently in the Ontario Farmer magazine, which I'm finding very entertaining. They are an industry publication, so they're by farmers for farmers, and they, of course, support the farming industry, and they don't really like animal advocates. They've recently been particularly upset about activism. And I think this all kind of started with uh, the debate I did on the agenda, TVO's The Agenda, with Steve Pakin, where I was debating that dairy farmer, Bonnie Denhan, who uh, was defending the dairy industry, and I pointed out that the dairy industry is not regulated. So the interesting thing about that whole debate is Bonnie kept saying, and inviting people basically to come onto farms because she would say, oh, look, uh, Ontario farms are so open. We have nothing to hide. Uh, there's always people inspecting them to see what's happening and anyone's welcome to come to farms anytime. And I kind of questioned that on the air and I was like, really? You think your chicken farmer neighbors with their massive industrial barns with hundreds or tens of thousands of chickens are going to let us in? Well, I'm not so sure about that. But recently, some um, local Toronto animal activists have been attending dairy farms to test Bonnie's theory that it's okay for anyone just to walk onto farms and see what they find. So Direct Action Everywhere and Liberation Toronto have visited a couple of dairy farms now, and they've, of course, seen very disturbing things. They, on one farm, saw row after row of veal hutches where there are thin plastic shelters with calves tethered to them, uh, kept away from their mothers, kept away from each other. They can't socialize with one another. They saw one dead calf. They saw one uh, sick or injured calf whom they attempted to help, but the farmer wouldn't let them take that calf. They were able to take the dead calf, and I believe they gave that animal an appropriate burial of sorts. But the Ontario Farmer magazine is really freaking out about these visits by activists of uh, onto farms. And they're writing all these overwrought pieces about how terrifying it is when people show up on farms. So let me just read you a couple of the headlines. One headline says, Our doors are now closed! Exclamation point. So no one's welcome to come to farms is what they're saying. Another headline says, Farmers feel vulnerable after activists' trespass action. Yet one more says, Activists are attacking our right to choose what we eat. And uh, another one says, when do farmers stop asking for approval when they're doing nothing wrong? So defensive much? I mean, I don't know. It seems kind of wrong to me to confine and harm thousands of thousands of animals in pursuit of uh, the meat industry. But I guess that's just me. But my all-time favorite headline is a piece called The Enemy. And this piece is actually kind of about me and animal justice. It's a, a writer named Ian Cummings who talks about the TV debate with uh, the dairy farmer Bonnie. And then he describes how he actually met me before, and he sat pretty close to me in the courtroom one time when animal justice was intervening in uh, the case about the OSPCA. So it's actually uh, kind of entertaining. He says, I sat within a couple of arm's lengths of Camille Labchuk, the young animal rights activist lawyer who debated the farmer. And uh, he says, some farmer lads in the crowd chuckled as I sat at the front and talked with her during breaks, but I wanted to get a sense of her. Then he describes how animal justice, quote, organized professionally in front of the courthouse with a camera and commentary, sending their message online around the world to their supporters. But the best part is this last line of the article. He says, they are your enemy. And I have to say, I 
truly enjoyed seeing those articles. It's, it's kind of gratifying. You sometimes wonder if activism is effective. And I think one way to know that it is effective is whether the people that you're agitating against are concerned about what you're doing. And I, I know I find it especially amusing when it comes to these pieces, like all that the activists are doing when they visit farms is exposing the conditions that animals are enduring. Uh, the only thing I do when I debate with dairy farmers is talking about the fact that there are bad conditions and there's no regulations to remedy them. So it's interesting that they were so concerned about transparency that they spend half their magazine complaining about the fact that people might know what's going on on their facilities. I, sunlight truly is the best disinfectant. If they're not willing to let people see what's happening on their farms, how can the public have any confidence that animals aren't being mistreated? I say that they can't. So we'll keep you posted. I do hope to see some more Ontario Farmer articles because they really do make my day. And for our main interview today, I'm joined by a special guest, Jake Kamins. He's Oregon's Animal Cruelty Deputy District Attorney, the very first statewide animal cruelty prosecutor in the United States. In his position, he's available to represent Oregon in criminal animal cruelty cases and has prosecuted over 140 individual cases of animal abuse and neglect. Jake also trains and consults with law enforcement, veterinary offices, animal rescue workers, and lawyers on animal cruelty issues, and he communicates regularly with the media as a subject matter expert and has been involved in legislative drafting and testimony. Okay, Jake, welcome to the Pod and Order podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a delight to speak with you about your position because I understand that it is somewhat unique. I understand that you're the only statewide prosecutor of animal cruelty crimes in the United States. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Um, I There are prosecutors who do animal cruelty prosecution as part of their job. You know, they'd be like the specialist in the office. Um, but I'm the only person for whom animal cruelty is a full-time uh, prosecution gig. Wow. And so do you end up traveling a lot? I understand you don't work just out of one jurisdiction. You're You're on the road in other places. Right. Yeah, I drive. I'm available uh, to uh, prosecute cases throughout the state of Oregon, uh, which is uh, it's not the biggest state, but it's it's not the smallest either. Um, and uh, we cover um, any uh, county. Uh, I've I've assisted uh, city prosecutors, um, but really anywhere in the state of Oregon. I've gone. Uh, pretty far south and east and west uh, and north. So, you know, uh, covered covered the whole land. All over. And yeah. uh, so I'm curious about how this works. I, I assume that there's such a high volume of, of cruelty cases in general that you wouldn't do every single state in the case, but that a, a district would call you in if they needed help. Is that more or less how it works? Or do you oversee most of them? That is how it works. Um, we uh, It would be probably logistically impossible for one person to uh, prosecute every animal cruelty case in the state. And it also wouldn't do anybody any favors um, in terms of the offices uh, actually learning how to do these cases. My job is, I think, best described as uh, a resource prosecutor, uh, which means that I can be a 
uh, a resource in terms of assisting uh, or a resource in terms of taking over a case. But uh, just as they have resource prosecutors in domestic violence cases, in driving under the influence cases, in other types of uh, specialized cases, you wouldn't necessarily want that person to do all the cases because then the local prosecutors uh, never have an opportunity to learn how to do these cases. And uh, certainly some of them get more complex than others, and that tends to be the caseload that I come on with. When the cases are have a little bit of a wrinkle to them or uh, are a little bit complicated for one reason or another. Oh, I see. So, so you do many cases yourself, but you also exist to help other prosecutors with their cases and help them understand the often complex issues that can arise in cruelty prosecutions. Yes, and even moreover than than uh, helping prosecutors, I spend a lot of my time uh, training law enforcement officers uh, because if the investigation isn't done correctly, uh, there's not much that even the best prosecutor can do with it. So if you if you don't collect the evidence on the front end, uh, if you seize evidence unlawfully so it gets excluded at trial, um, if you don't know the right questions to ask the witnesses or the defendants or the victim uh, at the time, uh, you may end up with a worse case. So I do spend a lot of time going to law enforcement agencies and offering uh, trainings and uh, updates, uh, ensuring that these cases are built uh, strongly from the ground up. Got it. Got it. Well, I, I do want to talk in a, a lot more detail about some of your cases and, and more about the work you do. But just jumping back for a second, your position is so interesting because uh, not only are you the first statewide resource prosecutor for animal cruelty offenses, but the position is actually funded somewhat uniquely as well by the Animal Legal Defense Fund, our, our friends in the states who do very similar work to what animal justice does. I'm curious just to know a little more about how this partnership came about uh, that the ALDF is, is able to support your position. Sure. Um, in 2013, uh, the state of Oregon was doing uh, a number of things in terms of uh, animal cruelty legislation. Uh, the the legislators were uh, passing a package of bills that came to be known as Senate Bill 6 uh, that really kind of overhauled and strengthened animal cruelty laws throughout the state of Oregon. Uh, at the same time, uh, the Animal Legal Defense Fund had seen, um, from what I understand, uh, how resource prosecution is a uh, an assistance to uh, prosecutors on cases that take more time, take more effort, uh, have uh, complicated fact patterns, and they thought that that could be a good option uh, for um, a, a statewide resource prosecutor spot. So um, they partnered with uh, the Oregon District Attorneys Association. Uh, and the Benton County District Attorney's Office. Benton County is uh, a county in uh, sort of uh, the Willamette Valley here in Oregon. Um, it's where our Oregon State University is, which is where our main uh, veterinary uh, uh, university is. And it's also uh, the um, home of the former uh, director of the Animal Legal Defense Fund's uh, Criminal Investigations Unit, um, Scott Heiser. And so he had been working at the Benton County DA's office. He had actually been 
the district attorney for Benton County, and then he had gone to Animal Legal Defense Fund uh, and had proposed this uh, position be created. So there was a, an agreement between the uh, Animal Legal Defense Fund, the Oregon District Attorneys Association, and the Benton County DA's office to uh, create and house this position. Um, and then uh, I had been working as a deputy DA here in Portland uh, for about four years and uh, applied for this job. And to, to uh, no one's shock more than mine, I was uh, given the opportunity to do this work uh, on a statewide basis. Uh, now you asked about the, the funding of the position and how that kind of works. So the way that it works is that Animal Legal Defense Fund uh, provides uh, essentially grant money uh, to the uh, Benton County uh, District Attorney's Office. The Benton County DA's Office then hires me as a contractor. Um, the work that I do is um, entirely for elected district attorneys of the state. So if I go to do a case, for example, in uh, Benton County, uh, I uh, swear uh, the same oath that uh, Benton County district attorneys swear. Um, and on that particular case, I am working under that uh, district attorney's purview. So I, I don't have any um, uh, responsibilities to or interaction with Animal Legal Defense Fund um, in terms of uh, you know uh, them telling me what to do on my cases or me asking them what I should do on my cases. Uh, my case-based discussions are between me and the deputy, or excuse me, the district attorneys uh, that appoint me. Um, I have talked to ALDF, as have many prosecutors throughout the state uh, on an ongoing basis, uh, about legal updates, uh, about uh, expert witness fees, um, but these are things that ALDF has been providing for, I think, going back 30 years. Um, so I'm paid by the Benton County DA's office, and I'm responsible to the uh, district attorneys who appoint me on their cases. Oh, interesting. So two things come to mind. First of all, every time I speak with an American, I'm still just blown away by the idea of elected district attorneys, which is so foreign to us in Canada. So mm -hmm. I don't have any comment on that other than that I'm always surprised by it, but it's interesting to us. Um, and, and second of all, that's, uh, thanks for explaining a little bit about the arrangement. Um, it's, it's curious to me because we've, we've had a lot of discussion in Ontario recently and in Canada in general about the proper roles of law enforcement and prosecution in the system um, and what private elements are appropriate to introduce. And I'm thinking particularly of a case that animal justice was involved with. Um, I'll just fill you in on it briefly. It's called the Bogarts case, and it was a, a constitutional challenge to the Ontario SPCA, which is a private charity but enforces public laws. And we can talk about law enforcement in Oregon and how that works, but the court said that they were concerned over uh, you know, essentially privatization of, of prosecutions, or in this case, it was investigations. Mm -hmm. And I know it's, it's a different situation because we're talking about investigations versus prosecutions, but I'm wondering if you've ever encountered these concerns in a case. Has any enterprising defense counsel ever tried to raise prosecutorial independence in any of your animal cases? Have you found that that comes up? So I would say in my casework, uh, no defense attorney has ever uh, made any kind of attempt to 
um, challenge my, um, I guess, standing, for lack of a better word, um, or uh, anything about my involvement in the case as being uh, unethical or inappropriate. Um, there has been some general chatter. Uh, there was an article uh, pretty early on when I was doing this job in the Willamette Week all about um, this position. And at that time, some people raised concerns that this was essentially, uh, you know, what you're saying, like a private funded prosecutor, um, you know, and, and my response to that has always been, uh, you know, my understanding is that uh, there's no, uh, you know, sort of um, rules in terms of uh, who can be appointed as a deputy district attorney on a special prosecution type basis, um, as long as that person doesn't directly have any um, conflicts of interest. Uh, and and um, because I come in on these cases um, to uh, – uh, and swear the same oath that any deputy district attorney does. Uh, my files are entirely open uh, in terms of um, public records requests, um, and I am, uh, you know, able and willing to uh, engage with anybody on these uh, issues. And I don't have any contractual uh, obligation to ALDF. I don't have any contractual relationship with ALDF. Um, that my uh, work on these cases is not tainted by those kinds of concerns. Um, mm. You know, and it's, it's uh, I'm paid by a district attorney's office to do district attorney's office work. Uh, that's how I see it. Uh, I've never uh, taken any direction from ALDF or taken any, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, even uh, spent any time um, discussing my cases uh, in any detail in terms of, well, what do you guys think I should do next uh, on this? Um, I've provided them some information about my cases on request. It's the same information that I would provide to any civilian or reporter who asked for that information. It's sort of public records type information. Right. So, so I don't have any relationship with them. I get paid by the Benton County District Attorney's Office, and I work at the pleasure of the district attorneys who appoint me. Gotcha, gotcha. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing a little bit more about the the arrangement. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as much as I support, obviously, specialized cruelty prosecutors, I, I know there's there's always concern about uh, precedents that the industries might attempt to use against animal protection advocates. And I this probably isn't a fair uh, comment because I don't think you can really respond to this because it's, it's it's kind of speculative but sometimes i wonder like does an arrangement like this open up the door to the farming industry funding a special prosecutor to go after activists who might do undercover investigations or direct action everywhere style uh disruptions of, of farms or things like that but uh, you can comment on that if you want but i know you it's, it's probably beyond what you're able to say given the confines of your position yeah, well, I, I don't know that it's, uh, you know, responsible to speculate for me about, you know, possibilities uh, of other things that are out there that, that aren't out there, I guess I should say. I'm not aware of anything like that. Um, if something like that came up, then, um, you know, I, I'm sure there would be a discussion um, in the community about whether that's appropriate or not. 
um, just as the way that there was essentially that discussion early on in uh, my tenure in this job. And like I said, uh, you know, no defense attorney has raised a challenge to my position in that way. And I think that's because they're, uh, they've got the same sort of sense that I do, um, that this is uh, an appropriate use of um, funding and powers and doesn't uh, raise any legal or ethical concerns. Mm, gotcha. Well, back- I've gone up, I should say, I've gone up against a lot of very, uh, you know, tenured and talented and thoughtful defense attorneys um, who are definitely very, um, you know, uh, zealous in their advocacy uh, for their clients. And that hasn't come up. Well, keep me posted. If it ever does come back, I'd love to <laughs> delve back into that because it would be Absolutely. very interesting. Yep. But uh, why don't we get back to you and how you got into your position? Um, you mentioned that you were surprised somewhat to be to be um, moved into this job. And a lot of our listeners to the podcast are students uh, and are keen to know about opportunities in animal law and how people end up in the positions that they're in. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you did get this job and what your path was. Were you interested in animal advocacy in law school? And what's your story? Yeah. Well, I uh, I appreciate the opportunity to tell you, but I I gotta say I I I don't know how much of an object lesson it's going to be for somebody um, <laughs> because I was uh, not really geared toward animal law um, in law school. I I started law school um, uh, at uh, Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, after my first year, I was uh, miserable there and missing my then girlfriend, now wife, in Portland. Uh, so I transferred to Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon, which, uh, if your listeners don't know, um, is absolutely one of the best uh, law schools uh, that you can go to if you want to do either environmental law or animal-related uh, uh, law. Absolutely. Uh, that, that being said, I took exactly zero advantage of those excellent programs. Wow. I did not take an animal class. Uh, you know, I was real focused on two things. I was focused on you know, spending as little time in the classroom as I could, um, and also getting as much uh, in terms of real world practical uh, in court experience as I could, um, because I knew I wanted to uh, be a talking lawyer. (laughs) Not as much of a writing lawyer. Um, I said, that's sort of where my skills, uh, I think, uh, are strongest. Um, and so one of the things that I did was I took an entire semester of law school to extern at the district attorney's office uh, just south of Portland in Clackamas County. And so for the entire semester, I didn't go to class. I just uh, was at the DA's office working as a legal intern, appearing in uh, court, uh, you know, making charging decisions, uh, sort of learning the ropes on that kind of thing. And um, when I graduated, I knew I wanted to um, continue working as a prosecutor if possible. Um, I had uh, applied, you know, when I was in law school to pretty much any kind of criminal law opportunities um, and had just ended up with Clackamas County. Um, And then at that point, really got a taste for 
uh, and an appreciation of the job that prosecutors do. Um, you know, I, I really um, enjoy the challenge of prosecution, and I enjoy uh, the ability to make positive change in people's lives, both victims and defendants, um, in uh, making this uh, messy system work as best as we possibly can. So, uh, you know, when I graduated from law school, I applied at all the local uh, DA's offices in the area. Um, a few months after taking the bar, uh, a job came through at the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office. Multnomah County is the county that includes Portland and uh, some of the outer uh, suburbs of Portland. Um, and it's the highest population county in the state of Oregon, and it was also the one that I uh, essentially lived in at that time. So it was a good, it was a good fit. Um, and I started working there, uh, you know, maybe a month after uh, I learned that I had passed the bar. Um, and uh, at the DA's office, they kind of do, uh, or at the time that I started there, uh, their practice was a bit of uh, throwing you in the deep end of the pool. Uh, you know, they oh, start, yeah. when, when I was there, uh, the, the way that it worked was on Thursday of every week, you would get a stack of cases, most of which you'd never seen before or heard of, and those would be your cases for trial for the following week. Oh, so you, so you can trial. spend your whole weekend prepping for cases. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, you could spend your weekend, you know, learning about all the witnesses that haven't been called and all the police reports that you have to make sense of and all the evidence that hasn't been ordered from the police locker room for you. So oh, um, you could be fantastic. ready for trial. Uh, the, uh, the other thing that would happen that that was, that was best case scenario, because the other thing that would happen is you would be assigned to, uh, say two trials, um, in front of this two different judges on the same day, you would get them both ready for trial. Uh, both judges would say, all right, we're ready to go to trial. Who's trying this one? Who's trying that one? And you would find one of your hapless colleagues who didn't have a trial that day and say, guess what? <laughs> You have a trial today. Here's the file. Uh, jury's ready for selection down in uh, courtroom 200. So. Oh, the efficiency of the criminal court system. I I, used, right. I I can relate. I used to be a defense counsel and experienced many of those same issues that you would have had from the other side. So, yeah, it sounds like trial by fire. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing that I always envied defense attorneys on this was, uh, you know, if a defense attorney had two trials, um, the courts wouldn't make them hand one off to another defense attorney because defense attorneys, obviously, you know, they, they're protecting their clients' rights and they, they uh, know their cases inside and out. And it's uh, really important, you know, that they that a person not be uh, represented by somebody who they'd never even met on the day of trial. So those cases would get set over. Prosecutors are fungible. You know, they can, you can swap one in for another and the court really doesn't care uh, that you've never seen the case before. So that was, that was our uh, special uh, joy in uh, doing those cases. <laughs> oh, that's now, funny. This... I'm pretty sure that judges would have thrown me down in the jail cells in contempt of court if I'd scheduled two trials at the same Oof. time. Never yeah. happened, thankfully, but yeah, it's tough. <laughs> Well, this is all a long way of saying that uh, there were some cases, even on the misdemeanor level where you start out, where that was not the way that they were dealt with. 
Um, these would be cases that would have uh, particularly vulnerable victims, uh, cases that may have had uh, some kind of a uh, made some kind of a splash in the local media, um, or animal uh, abuse and neglect cases. Those cases, that class of cases, were always handled. Um, they were specially assigned, which meant that as soon as they were um, charged, uh, they would be handed to one particular deputy, one particular deputy district attorney, and it would be specially assigned to that person. And what that would mean is that whatever was happening. That was your case. You were getting it ready for trial. You were making sure that all the motions issues were fully litigated. You were making sure that all the witnesses were where they needed to be when they needed to be there. Uh, you took special care of those cases. There was a policy that if a case had an animal victim, it would be specially assigned at the DA's office. I believe that still uh, is intact in today, although they've changed around the way that they um, sort of handled cases there generally so that it's a little less uh, uh, fraught, I think. Um, but even at the time that I worked there with that system in place, uh, animal cases were always specially assigned. For And again, this is one of those just sort of random coincidence things. For whatever reason, I ended up with... I would say more than my share of animal cases as specially assigned cases. I didn't ask for them. I didn't really seek them out. But when it came time to hand those cases out, uh, my supervisor at the time, for whatever reason, would hand them to me. So I had done these uh, massive hoarding cases, these kind of like really sad neglect cases. Um, one of the first specially assigned cases I ever uh, did, I remember, was a case with a woman who um, had gotten a dog from local the local animal shelter, and the dog had just uh, sort of stopped eating. Like had had you know sort of like slowed and stopped eating at a certain point, and she basically did nothing. She didn't take it back to the animal shelter. She didn't take it to the vet. She didn't do any of the sort of basic things that you would expect a person to do. And sad to say, the dog starved to death and died. And uh, you know, it was only because. Um, I don't even remember what the, the situation was. I think a neighbor maybe, which is you know how a lot of these cases get started, saw the dog dead in a kennel on the back porch and oh, called God. and called animal services who, you know, they uh, came out and checked and found this and you know, she said, I just didn't know what to do. He just wasn't eating. Um, and it just was one of those situations where uh, you know, uh, minimum care requirements were not obviously not met uh, in the realm of either veterinary care or food or both. Um, and so I handled that case and uh, several others and really got a taste for um, these cases in terms of how um, they they require a lot of thought and they require a lot more sort of um, preparation and effort and education 
than you know uh, the average, uh, say, DUII case or uh, the average uh, disorderly conduct case, something like that. Um, and uh, so by the time this position came open, I had done a lot of different kinds of prosecution. Um, but I really appreciated uh, the uh, kind of work that needed to go into these animal cruelty cases. Um, and I had also had the opportunity, just as a side note, to uh, uh, you know contact the Animal Legal Defense Fund and get their input on a case that I had where they had been uh, litigating the same issue in a different county um, uh, that I was dealing with. And so I had been really impressed by their uh, resources and abilities and was happy to see that they were making this a priority for the state of Oregon. Oh, okay. Well, your your story strikes me as not unlike a lot of stories of prosecutors I've heard uh, from here in Canada. We, we do have a few crown attorneys, we, we call them crown attorneys up here, who prosecute animal cruelty cases uh, as a resource crown or more often as just sort of the go-to person in the office when the cases come up. And uh, I find that one of the common threads is that most of them just kind of happen into it. They do a couple of cases, they find that they like them, they appreciate uh, that they feel they can make a difference, and they start to get known in the office as the person who does the animal cases. And so people just hand off those cases to those crown attorneys. So it right. strikes me that your story is uh, it's a little bit similar in nature to, to those. Yeah, so, the, bi the big difference that I would say is that you guys get to wear those snazzy outfits when you go to court, and I oh, just have to the wear legal a boring robes. old suit. <laughs> yeah, the, the legal robes are great because you don't have to think about what you're going to wear, but unfortunately, you only get to wear them in the higher levels of court, which not usually the cruelty cases make it to, but... Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, I, was, I wasn't clear on that. I, you know, I, I take all my um, uh, education on Canadian legal system from, like just comedy sketches and things. So <laughs> I just think big, big wigs and, uh, you know, big robes. Yeah. Thankfully we don't have the wigs up here either, but, uh, oh, nice. but yeah, yeah. That, that's just, I think it's just the UK and Australia, but probably some other oh, places okay. too, but, uh, but I do enjoy the robes there They make it a lot easier to get dressed in the morning. I bet. Uh, so Jake, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about some of the cases that you've done that uh, are, are most unique or you're most proud of or are most precedent setting. Do a few of them stand out to you? Sure. Well, uh, one uh, that uh, was pretty big early on is uh, was um, a case uh, out in uh, Polk County, which is uh, just... Uh, west of uh, Salem, Oregon, which is the capital. And that is um, a, a case called uh, State versus Robert Silver. It was a case uh, actually not even three months after I started in the position, or just after three months, I was called out um, because local law enforcement was doing a warrant service on this property um, that they had uh, received multiple complaints about. Uh, the property was known as Jocelyn's Alpaca Ranch. Um, I didn't know at the time really anything about alpacas, uh, and I, you know, I, I just started this job, so I was sort of just getting my feet wet 
uh, learning about and, and the, all the new law changes that had just been made, um, all the issues uh, that came up around it. Um, I had never accompanied police on a warrant service before, uh, so uh, I was really thrown in the deep end on this one too. Um, and when we went out, we actually went out two different times, once to search and then another time to seize uh, the animals. Um, it was a, it was a complete horror show. Um, this this uh, ranch had originally started with something like a dozen animals uh, right at the right before the economy crashed uh, in 2008. Um, and by the time we got there in 2013 in December, uh, there were uh, like over 150. Um, animals of various ages and genders all mixed in together. There was nothing keeping them sort of separated. Um, and they were in what the veterinarian described as feedlot conditions. Oh, dear. Um, yeah, which alpacas, that's not uh, anywhere close to ideal. They're not feedlot type animals. Um, you know, and, and you can talk about, you know, the ethics or, or what have you of feedlots in general, but alpacas are not well suited for that type of condition. Um, it had been a particularly cold winter, particularly wet winter, um, and these animals looked awful. Um, there were multiple dead animals uh, in, wherever you looked. Um, the ones that you saw that were still on their feet, um, you know, they still had that like shaggy fur coat, so you couldn't really tell from looking at them from a distance. But as soon as you walked up to them and put your hands on their sides, you could just feel the bones sticking out through their sides. So oh, just totally it, emaciated, huh? Totally emaciated. I have pictures of them uh, where they there was a huge tree kind of in the middle of their enclosure. And you could tell just looking at where the alpacas sort of stood and the the line of the tree bark that the alpacas had stripped the tree of its bark as far as their necks could reach. Aww. So they like just had totally taken the tree out. They were chewing on uh, plastic tarps to try to get any kind of protein. They were they were like suckling on each other's backs. It was disturbing. So wow. this case uh, happened, like I said, it was a few months after this package of bills had just been passed by the Oregon uh, legislature uh, for the first time uh, making animal neglect, as opposed to animal abuse, a felony uh, eligible offense. Right. So, and I'm, and I'm just going to pause for a second to yeah. explain to some of our Canadian listeners. In Canada, we use the terms misdemeanor. Uh, sorry, no. In, in America, you use the terms misdemeanor and felony. In Canada, we tend to say summary in offenses versus indictable offenses. They're not exactly the same, but roughly analogous in that there's two levels of offending. Summary or misdemeanor is a lower level and felony or indictable higher level. Right. So in 2013, the legislature had added um, charges of felony, animal neglect to the statute. Um, there's uh, the, the main way that you, uh, would commit neglect as a felony would be failing to provide minimum care to a, a certain number of animals at the same time. Right. And, so that's designed for larger cases. 
Right, larger cases. There's also uh, conditions by which if you neglect an animal and the animal dies and there's a minor child present, that can become a felony. Um, but the main thing is the number of animals involved. And so and, uh, and this what's, guy... What's the practical yeah. difference if you're prosecuting a case between uh, doing it as a misdemeanor and a, as a felony? Uh, a couple different things. First of all, a misdemeanor case um, can be charged uh, with just at the discretion of the deputy district attorney who's doing the charging decision. Um, essentially, the police make an arrest or, or cite somebody into court. The district attorney then gets the reports, reads them, decides, was there a misdemeanor committed here? If they say yes, then they write it down on what's called a district attorney's information. Uh, which they file with the courts, and the case gets started. Um, if you are looking to charge somebody with a felony offense, you either have to go through uh, the grand jury process, which means that you bring your witnesses uh, in front of a group of seven individuals from the community, you put your evidence on, and they decide whether there's enough evidence to go forward, or in some circumstances, you have to have a preliminary hearing where a judge hears your evidence and then makes the decision as to whether there's enough evidence to go forward. Okay. Um, so that's the the procedural uh, difference. The uh, uh, difference in uh, outcome is that a misdemeanor typically carries up to a year in jail as a punishment and um, fines up to something like $6,250, I think is the, is the max. Whereas felonies uh, potentially carry prison time um, more than a year in jail, although that is all subject to uh, the sentencing guidelines, which is an incredibly dense and tough to explain subject that is best left for <laughs> a law school <laughs> class or uh, a CLE, uh, continuing education, um, on uh, as opposed to this podcast. <laughs> Got it. Well, I'm sure our listeners will be more interested in the details of the case anyway and, and what went down. Yeah, so uh, there were two people in charge of uh, this operation, uh, Robert Silver and his wife, Jocelyn Silver. Now, uh, because uh, it was a felony offense, uh, it was subject to what I just talked about, the criminal guidelines. And all that you need to know about it for this story is that the way people's uh, sentences are decided – uh, on felony uh, cases is a combination of how serious the particular offense was and how bad their prior criminal history was. So you add those two things up, put them in a chart, and you come out with what the offense uh, sentence is supposed to be. Um, in the case of Jocelyn Silver, uh, she, I believe, did not have any criminal history. So she was going into this case looking at a presumptive sentence of probation, um, you know, uh, and uh, we made that offer and she ultimately accepted responsibility, pled guilty and was put on probation. Uh, Robert Silver, on the other hand, had a pretty serious criminal history that included um, person crimes uh, in his past. Person crimes are sort of in, in this uh, sentencing guidelines way treated as the most serious uh, offenses. 
and he had uh, been presumptively scheduled for a prison sentence. Um, he did not want to go to prison, um, so he took the case to trial, um, and we ended up having the first felony animal neglect trial uh, in Oregon's history. Wow. Um, yeah, about a year after the investigation was completed. And was it a slam dunk, easy trial to win for you, or were there some challenges in the prosecution of it? Trial, I find, is almost never a slam dunk. There's always some piece of information, no matter how much you time you spend preparing and getting ready and, and learning what you think are all the ins and outs of your case. Uh, there's always going to be something that's going to come up that's going to throw you, you know, a loop. Now, uh, before I say anything uh, else, I, I won. He was convicted on all the charges that I uh, brought against him. Um, but, I, you know, I hesitate to say that it was an easy thing. It's it's difficult, and I think particularly difficult maybe in these animal neglect cases. Um, maybe not so much for Robert Silver, but a lot of what I see um, in my uh, work are people who maybe think they were doing the right thing, if that makes sense. Um, there definitely are people who... Uh, you know, care about their animals um, to a degree that is 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 kind of heart wrenching when you see the conditions that they've ultimately left their animals in. You know, and one of the things that I really appreciate about uh, Oregon's statutory scheme in particular is that the the mens rea, the mental state. Uh, that we as prosecutors use in animal neglect cases is that of criminal negligence. So in most crimes, I don't know if you want me to get into the weeds here for a, just a minute, but uh, yeah, go, most... go for it. This is actually interesting because we've had some difficult yeah. issues around negligence in Canada and the mental state. So I'm curious to hear it. Yeah. So in most crimes uh, in Oregon, uh, you uh, commit them either intentionally, you had a conscious objective to achieve a certain result, or knowingly, you were at least aware of the criminality and the, the conditions of your um, uh, conduct, or recklessly, which means that you had a conscious awareness uh, that there was a risk. Uh, involved in your behavior, and you disregarded that risk. Now, with uh, criminal negligence cases, um, it's kind of like recklessness, except it removes the conscious awareness element. So what criminal negligence says is just that there was a risk, and the person failed to be aware of that risk. And so kind of what that does, in my mind at least, is it means that if you're deciding to take care of an animal, you have an obligation to make yourself aware of what that animal needs for minimum care. And if you don't make yourself aware of it, if you just kind of close your eyes or uh, just you know, uh, do whatever it is you think is right 
without consulting anybody, without looking for resources, without thinking about even in extreme circumstances, maybe I should give this animal up for adoption, or maybe I need to find some, figure something else out, then you could be liable for uh, animal neglect. Got so, I, you know, you know that, that's sort of what I lean on. I lean on that a lot in my work. And I also uh, look at where the legislature has actually said um, in the law that animals are sentient beings capable of experiencing pain, fear, and suffering and should be dealt with in ways that minimize those, uh, those possibilities. Yeah, so, that's, that's a pretty strong statement from, from legislators. We've, um, yeah. we've been trying to get changes to uh, Canada's federal cruelty laws, particularly the neglect provisions for years, because the standard right now, and you'll appreciate that this is basically an oxymoron, but the mental standard for neglecting an animal is willful neglect. So terms that are essentially the polar opposite of each other, willful and neglect. So we've yeah. been attempting to change ours to something more like a gross negligence standard, but uh, so far that hasn't worked. We are ever hopeful that it will at some point, but it's interesting to hear a bit about that experience. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm curious as well. Uh, we find that I would say the majority of cruelty cases prosecuted in Canada, uh, or certainly the ones investigated, tend to be neglect-based offenses. Is that your experience as well with your work? Uh, yeah, it is. I, I think... Um... You know, and obviously it's kind of a weirdly self-selecting sample that I end up with, but I think, you know, abuse cases are on the whole uh, rarer because uh, if abuse happens, it probably happens in the house. And when abuse happens, um, it's kind of difficult to see. Um, if, if that makes sense, animals kind of have a, my understanding from speaking to veterinarians is that animals have, uh, an evolutionary, um, uh, uh, quirk. I don't know if it's a quirk, an evolutionary, uh, adaptive, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah. That adaptation uh, just, for sure. Yeah. The, to hide injury, you know, because, uh, if, if you show an injury as an animal, you know, your your brain tells you that you're going to get eaten by the next predator that comes along. So, uh, you know, if an animal is injured, they do their best to hide their limps. They do their best to hide their, uh, you know, uh, broken bones. They uh, obviously, um, their fur helps with some of this because you can't see a bruise on a, a dog or a cat as easily as you can see on a person. Um, and so abuse is kind of easier to hide. I don't know for sure if it's because it's less common or if it's just because of those issues. Yeah, um, I yeah, would suspect tough. that it's, I, I would suspect that it's, it's less like it's less common, but I, I don't have any statistics to back that up one way or the other. No, that's one of those things. It's, it's pretty much impossible to study, but but I'm, I'm glad you bring up those issues because I did want to ask you about some of the particular challenges that you face when prosecuting animal cruelty offenses. And I think that the number one challenge right off the bat is that animals can't report abuse themselves, not in, not in the way that they would go down to the police station and, and report it to police officers for sure. They can sometimes indicate this uh, or have signs on their bodies. But I'm wondering what other challenges that 
you face in, in the work that you do in those prosecutions uh, and how you try to get around them? Well, a big one, uh, that that's definitely a, a big one, but one that I see uh, even more often maybe is um, the issue that I'm uh, one of the few prosecutors for whom most of my cases have evidence that is uh, living, you know? Um, so if, if an animal is uh, seized, it's both a piece of evidence in my case and a living creature that, as we just discussed, requires care and feeding and minimum, you know, provisions. So I, um, uh, a lot of times work with agencies, uh, particularly in more rural counties, um, where they don't necessarily have the ability to house, uh, you know, uh, abused and neglected animals for, um, for extended periods of time. Right. And it can be a year, it could be two years, it could be a long time before a case gets to trial, right? Yeah, absolutely. It can it can take a long time and obviously those animals need ongoing care um, you know, while the case is pending. So uh one of the things that uh Oregon law allows for is called pretrial forfeiture. Um Oregon is pretty strict uh, in terms of its civil forfeiture laws, um, it's it's disfavored generally, and um, pretty flatly disallowed in the in terms of um, uh, just a, a standard issue criminal case pre-trial. Um, if you want to seize somebody's assets as a part of a criminal case, you have to file essentially criminal charges against the assets, and then you have to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that those assets were used in connection with the crime. Oh. In, wow. animal, in animal cases, on the other hand, uh, we have what's called pretrial forfeiture, which is a special um, proceeding that only happens in animal cases and uh, allows the state to put on evidence uh, for a judge to make a determination, basically a probable cause determination, as to was this animal abused or neglected. If the judge says yes, then that doesn't end the inquiry because at that point the judge has to decide how much money is it going to cost to take care of this animal from the time it was seized until the time we have trial. And then the judge is told in the law to uh, essentially order the forfeiture but allow a person to post a bond amount to keep the animal from being forfeited. So oh. that's to say that a, a defendant, even getting a negative ruling on that issue, can still avoid their animal being forfeited by posting all the money that it will require to care for that animal during the period of time leading up to trial. Oh, gotcha. Wow. And then if they win at trial, you know, conceivably they get their animal back. But if right. they lose a trial, then the judge has a decision to make in terms of uh, terminating their uh, ownership of the animal or not. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, very interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, Jake, about uh, 
if you've had any opportunity to date to um, to prosecute corporations that are involved in animal use on a broader scale. I know a lot of the cases that come before the courts are discrete abuse cases or discrete neglect cases, but I'm curious to know if in Oregon the climate has tended towards uh, prosecuting any corporate offenders for, say, firmed animal abuse cases or research laboratories or anything in that nature. Um, you know, I haven't. Um, I uh, uh, haven't been made aware of anything like that in Oregon while I've been doing this job. Uh, the closest that I think I have come is, uh, and, and this is not really close, um, is that I've done a few cases that involve um, basically uh, small cattle farms uh, that have gotten um, out of control and, and uh, have had huge neglect issues. Um, so I, you know, the, the main, I think, you know, and I, I, I'd be hesitant to speculate as to why that is. Um, there, there is uh, some degree of cutout in Oregon law uh, on um, agricultural issues uh, for animal cruelty crimes. Right. Um, so essentially some, some what farming says, practice exemption style. It, well, yeah. And it, it, essentially what it says is that there's kind of a higher degree of um, proof required if a person is engaged in uh, livestock production or uh, it has a lot of things in there, but veterinary practice, uh, rodeo is in there because oh. in the eastern part of the state, there's a lot of rodeo um, that that happens. Um, so uh, I think that's part of it, um, you know, and, and the other thing is there's, there's uh, probably a higher degree of difficulty in collecting uh, evidence on cases like that, um, you know, obviously similar to most animal cases, um, they're, uh, they happen indoors and they happen away from public view, uh, and, uh, they are, um, uh, not things that, that, you know, people are just letting people in to say, Hey, look at this thing that we're doing. Um, uh, and, you know, the, uh, the sense that I get is that, um, actually I, I shouldn't even say, I don't know. I, I, I've never, I've not been assigned to one of those cases. I'm not aware of any corporate, um, prosecutions for animal cruelty, uh, that have happened while I've been in this job. Um, but, uh, uh that being said, I would not, you know, hesitate to review cases the same way, uh, however they came to me. You know, I, I would review a case using the same uh, tools that I've used uh, to review all of my cases. Um, you know, it's just, it's not been something that I've dealt with. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, Jacob, we're running out of time, but I am so grateful that you were able to join us for this interview. I think it was super fascinating to learn more about the work that you do and your very unique position. So thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It was great. Heroes and Zeros. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. This episode, we want to give the hero shout out to Dr. Kendra Coulter of Brock University. 
Kendra released a report uh, analyzing uh, public opinion, basically, on where animal protection law enforcement should be going in the province of Ontario. She actually got 20,000 people to participate in a survey that she put up in January, asking people what they think about how animal cruelty laws should be enforced. Should be they, they be enforced by the police, by municipalities, by a special agency? What kinds of things do they value? And so on. And I think that the report is extremely valuable because it gives us insight into what the public expects. And 90% of people who responded to that survey see animal cruelty investigations as a public responsibility. And most people actually support the Ontario Provincial Police and local police forces enforcing animal cruelty laws. They uh, Respondents also overwhelmingly supported a model where, in addition to police services doing the enforcement, animal welfare organizations are empowered to assist by providing animal care and sheltering and other training. So it's interesting to, uh, to see that the public is largely on board with what animal justice has been suggesting, which is that we should have public enforcement of cruelty laws. So thank you to Dr. Coulter for conducting that survey. I'm sure it's going to be hugely influential as we all keep pushing for a better system in Ontario. The zero this week, I'm sad to say, is the Ontario government for a new announcement that it would give $10 million per year to the horse racing industry. This is pretty appalling. $10 million a year, uh, you know, it's, it's a large number. It's, it's interesting to contrast it with the money that the province has been giving to the Ontario SPCA for law enforcement to date, which has been less than $6 million. So the government's saying that horse racing is of more value than enforcing animal cruelty laws. I think that's wrong. Our friend Jessica Scott-Reed wrote a great opinion piece about why this funding announcement is unnecessary, unsustainable, and unethical. That appeared in the Toronto Star, and we will link to it. But she points out that horses suffer catastrophic injury rates and deaths. They break their ankles and legs or collapse from illnesses, overwork, travel, and stress in this industry. Racehorses are often fed performance-enhancing drugs, uh, often to mask injuries and force a horse to keep performing instead of letting them rest and recover. And instead of providing veterinary care, all too often the standard response by horse racers is to euthanize an injured horse who can no longer turn a profit. And of course, we think that's wrong. Uh, Public interest in horse racing is obviously waning. If this was a profitable industry that people still wanted to pay to attend, then it would be profitable on its own and the government wouldn't have to subsidize it. So why don't we let this industry die the death that it deserves and stop funding it? And that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed listening to me all by myself. Peter won't be back next week, but I will be joined by a guest co-host. So we'll talk then. Thanks for tuning in. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. 
You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. 